Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. And this week we have a special episode as we're doing something slightly different than normal. We are actually doing an interview with uh, Sean Esther Powell. Yes. 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 Hey, I got it right. That's it's funny that I got stuck on the second one all of a sudden. Like, what's that? Um, and you are on the Celtic Myth Podcast. You're the host of that show, correct? I am indeed Celtic myths and legends. There is another. There's another Celtic myth um, podcast. It's very, very, very good, but not quite me. Not quite the same. Okay, all right. So, what I wanted to talk about to kind of go into detail about is is specific stuff around Welsh legends and myths. Uh, we're in the process of, as I mentioned to you in the past, but to the kind of clarify to the group, I guess, who's listening. Um, we're on the cusp of getting into the discussions about Owen Glyndwr and uh, the role he played in in the last major Welsh revolt against the English crown. And uh, as part of that, one of the things that, that keeps coming back to me, and it was really brought up heavily in one of the episodes I just did, is both the the fear and the the hope that has come out of sources in that era specifically in the 14th and 13th centuries around uh what's perceived by the english and and obviously hoped for by the welsh that they can eventually defeat the english that they can overthrow them and in some respects even if you go back far enough throw them back out of britain as they perceive them as being interlopers and outsiders and not the true inheritors to Britain. So that's kind of the starting point of, of this discussion is because, you know, kind of what what's forcing or what's bringing this up, you know, what what sort of one of the things I, I, I brought up in, in our initial discussion is that you see commonalities in mythology uh, in this period, especially, but I would argue it, it goes back quite a long way of of sort of the superhero who's going to be the one that defeats the enemy, whomever the enemy is, be that the Messiah in in Old Testament times or you know the the figures of that nature. And Wales is no different. There there appears to at least be three that I can just think of off the top of my head that, that kind of fit that category. Um, one of which, which I always pronounce sort of poorly, so we'll see how this goes, is uh, Mason Wedlick, I think is how you say it, and that could be completely wrong. Um, and you have uh, Ambrosius, who is like the one that Gildas wrote about, and then you have Arthur, of course, who is more well-known to modern audiences as being a very important uh, uh, figure for sort of myth building and so that's kind of what i i wanted to start with is kind of talking about these 
you know, why, why is it that when, when cultures are in these situations, do they develop kind of the attitude of we need a, we need a savior to come help us or some great hero? Is it something specific about kind of the way we, we hold our hope out or that kind of thing? So I guess first off, before we get too deep into that weed though, I, I just wanted to, uh, if you could introduce yourself to the audience, so to speak, and kind of uh, your podcast so that they kind of know more about it. So I shouldn't get too far into specifics until we do that. No, I do have um, an answer for some of those kind of questions, though. Um, I'm Sean. Hello. I'm Sean Esther Powell, as you introduced me. Thank you very much. Um, I'm the host of Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. Um, find me on Twitter as well, always tweeting away about local history and heritage and folklore and things like that. Um, really interested in folklore. So I'm from Cornwall, but my father's Welsh. Most of my family are, are Welsh. Um, Sean Powell is a very Welsh name. Um, so I'm very interested in Welsh history and mythology as well. But absolutely not a scholar on <laughs> on this particular topic. So as I said, I will just be kind of um, winging it in discussions, try my best. Which is totally fair. I mean, I don't, I, I've never claimed to the audience to really be a, uh, well, I'm certainly not an academic in this area, um, but I do try and do as best as I can to cover the topics as thoroughly as I can. And I know there are times where I, I don't get to cover as much as I want or be able to read everything I want. So I don't think that's a reason to disclaim your ability or your understanding of the issue. So I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, do, I'm doing my master's in Celtic studies, so it gives me a, a sort of a tiny um, air of credibility, but <laughs> <laughs> that's something at least. Hey, well, it's more than me. I'm just a, I'm just a Bachelor of Arts kind of history major. <laughs> well, I haven't finished the master's yet, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so I guess to get back to the original question then, so so what I guess, what are your thoughts on this this subject and kind of where you think it might lie? Well, I think to answer first off, you have to, as you um, obviously well know, um, you have to understand that Welsh culture of the time was very much a storytelling culture. You know, you would have bards that would basically be enlisted with, you know, local lords that would tell stories about lineages and genealogies and things like that. So Welsh history has always been tied with storytelling and folk narratives. So it, it makes sense to me that the Welsh people would kind of plot things neatly into kind of um, narrative tropes to have this kind of hero-like um, leader rise up and liberate from the English who are seen as some kind of oppressive force. It's very much a kind of fairy tale fantasy storytelling structure. So it makes sense to me if when you kind of understand that's where the Welsh people were coming from, they're very much a storytelling people. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it, it's something I think we see in our own literature even today. But I think it's changing in by degrees. But I think there's still that sense of because um, I often uh, will use examples out of Native American culture, because there's kind of a similar sense of we were here first, you came here and then took over the place and kind of pushed us off to the side. And I, I see some relative things in common in that respect. 
um, and kind of how those that are sort of put into those categories are kept in places where, you know, like for example, in where I live in Canada, it's it the the native Canadians around here uh, found themselves put into parts of the the country which were less desirable and usually more isolated, specifically because they they were out of the way then, um, and so that the the settlers could basically take territory that was much more desirable and obviously going to offer more wealth and more protection. But now, of course, that's led to other interesting factors as, you know, now that territory is theirs and they have a hard time leaving that area because of their attachment to that area, which is fully understandable. So I kind of look at that and I see some similarities in how, how specifically the Welsh, I think in some ways, because unlike the Scottish and, and I guess to a degree the Irish as well, and probably the Cornish. I don't know enough about to to be able to speak on, but you know that that layer of sort of domination by one culture and kind of having to deal with it feels kind of like a similar conversation. It isn't you know one to one. You can't say well this equals that, but there are definitely some times where I kind of see that commonality right up to the old Roman ideas that the 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 peoples that they found here were basically like noble savages, that kind of idea. The very strong sort of concept of that in like Tacitus and people like that, where they're writing about the the tribes here and they basically are in Wales and, and in Britain in general and effectively said, you know, the ones that were fighting them the hardest were the noble ones because they were the ones that were actually not addicted to Roman culture. Um, so it feels a lot like sort of like the Victorian vibe on, on native cultures as well, kind of in that perspective. Um, but yeah, so with, cause I know you've, you've looked a little bit into them, uh, and I always struggle pronunciation wise on this, but the Mabinogi, is that how you say that? Mabinogian? The Mabinogion. <laughs> well, as I said, you know, it, it's a storytelling culture in Wales and not only oral storytelling, but also, you know, written storytelling as well. When you see the Mabinogion, um, you know, written between, I think, something like the 12th and 14th century, you know, that's the kind of estimated time for it where the manuscript was um, was found. But you have lots and lots of heroes in Welsh myths and legends. Um, lots of um, heroes from noble families. They're always kind of from noble families. Um, and that's who Owen Glyndwr was as well. You know, he was from landed gentry. So there is a kind of parallel. He fits perfectly with this idea of romanticised kind of nationalism. I think when you have movements like, you know, the Welsh uprising and all this you need a good figurehead and he was the perfect figurehead for it you know he was you know a very well educated man you know he was from the borderlands between England and Wales as you well know I'm sure um, so he was very able to kind of work in English and Welsh society but in Welsh society it was very much he was descended from the hereditary princes of Wales so there is this idea in Wales that genealogy and um, hereditary uh, it, it means something, you know, tracing families back. So, for example, my name, Powell, actually is Ap Howell, son of Howell. So this idea of son of, 
um, child of is really important in Welsh um, culture and history when you look back. So he's first descended from a long line of Welsh princes. So that kind of gives it this kind of mythic air itself anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess the the one thing I would describe is is at the same point within probably I'd say 100 years of that as well, maybe 200 ideas that are are being formed around the same time as as all of this literature is being written down or collected because you can argue that some of it was collected from much older verbal stories. Uh, you have what I would argue is a formalization of the Arthur character from being a member, just a leader of a war band to somehow being a nobility figure. Like he, he kind of merges into that degree. And I don't know whether it's something that's come, you know, it, it, I think if I remember correctly, I, I know Jen, Jeffrey of Monmouth is partially to blame for some of this. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I don't know if he's the one who actually makes him a king. I It feels like that was more of a French invention later, but I'm not sure. I can't remember well enough whether he said he was King Arthur at that point. I think he did, though, because I thought that he was the one who kind of came up with the idea of the round table and Guinevere and all that stuff. Uh, I'm biased, you know, I'm Welsh, but I'm also Cornish, and we Cornish have uh, lots of our own King Arthur origin stories of our own. <laughs> it, it, the problem is, is what we've got, I of stuff that's coming out of earlier centuries, where there's mention of this figure, but it's it's not clear where the figure's from. Is even his name isn't necessarily accurate, I think, because all we have is these references, like you're not as good as Arthur. That's one of the earliest references we have. Um, and and then the 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 one in the um in Nennius's documents talking about uh Arthur's achievements at various battles. But that was kind of it until you get to the Jeffrey Monmouth character writing all the ideas he had. And kind of that concept of Arthur as, is he from the Old North? Is he from Wales? Is he from Corn, you know, Cornwall? Um, or is he from somewhere else? Or did he exist at all? That That's where this whole thing comes from. And, and in my mind, in some ways, that's where I see Owain, and we'll talk much more about this on the podcast as we go through it, but I, I think that's kind of where Owain gets kind of cluttered into that idea even though he's he's not the same he's still a very successful individual who comes like you say from nobility so is it the nobility factor is this concept that that they have to be someone noble to be heroic is that something that we see often in these kind of stories or is that just something that's sort of come about and we just associate it with each other um, you do often see them coming from nobility. You do often see them coming from um, powerful families or at least from powerful lineage. You know, at least if they're not from the most wealthy or the most powerful families at the time, they are at least just descended from someone that once was. Um, I'd also just like to shout out Jeffrey of Monmouth because <laughs> uh, 
he really just he really just tried his best, didn't he? Um, I love um, History of the Kings of Britain. It's a brilliant read, but most of it's quite fanciful and <laughs> very mythical. But um, I love it. A very ambitious book. Yeah, for sure. It, it feels like basically he went, you know, all you English people running around saying how wonderful your history is. Well, here's a history. And it, you know, he just kind of took liberties whenever it felt good. It, yeah, it does kind of feel like that. Um, and you have yeah. to, you know, you have to understand as well that um, King Arthur is very much like a, a legendary um, ruler, a legendary leader. Um, but his whole figurehead was that his whole stance was that he was defending against Saxon invaders, you know, so he was this, the leader of Britain and in Welsh, um, calling back to your kind of point earlier as well about why we do see this narrative um, pop up in Wales again and again about um, like a Messiah type figure. Well, and about being like the earliest Britons is that it is a deep seated kind of Welsh belief that the Welsh are the first Britons, you know, um, mm -hmm. more so than Saxons and Normans and Vikings or whatever, whoever is invaded um, the British Isles. You know, it's a deep-seated kind of belief that the Welsh um, are the first Britons, you know, and, and are connected to the Cornish in that way, are connected to the Bretons over in France. Um, I think at the time, actually, of Owen Glyndewer's um, revolt, I think that Brittany was still an independent kingdom at that point. So I think he did have the help of the French and of um, the Bretons. So it's interesting to see that there was that connection between Wales and the Bretons. Even then, there was that kind of romanticised, um, like nationalist connection between them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's interesting to sort of see how uh, that, kind of perspective still i think revolves into today's culture and today's politics and today's history uh to the point where i remember not long back the bbc publishing a document talking about uh, dna and saying that the oldest dna in britain is actually in north and southwest wales and how excited people were about that and you only have to realize how isolated they were as to explain that but it's kind of funny to sort of see and you know, I'm no different than anybody else. I, my ancestors come from North Wales. So, you know, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's it's a silly thing to get excited about, but you do kind of think, oh, well, that makes me a little bit more something than someone else, even though that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, but certainly there, there is a sense of pride I've noticed coming out of those kind of things, you know, that 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 old idea about that. And yet at the same time being open and welcoming to anybody, not to say that that isn't. Well, I see it's actually, it's, it's stronger now that um, if anything, um, this idea of kind of pride um, is, is stronger now. And, you know, you know, I run a, you know, a podcast Celtic myths and legends where I talk about, you know, the six Celtic nations and it's not through kind of, um, you know, nationalism I'm doing it. And, and actually, mm. It is a little bit um, false to kind of claim these places are really similar because it's only in retrospect that we've looked back at kind of ancient 
Iron Age Celtic tribes and said, oh, they're quite similar. And then, you know, through history have gone, oh, they're quite similar as well. So it was nice for, for me to kind of realise that um, Breton and Wales had that connection before, because really I just see this kind of Celtic um, revival now being very strong now, but actually doesn't really have that much historical credibility. Um, I think there's a real need for people as well to feel part of um, a community in some way, um, you know, for various factors, you know, I'm not only going to blame the internet or whatever, but we're finding ourselves increasingly um, isolated. So I think there's a real resurgence now in um, history and heritage and culture and folklore um, and how that sort of translates to land and landscape but I guess also as you said also DNA you know I'm I'm personally not very interested <laughs> in genetics and DNA but that's easy for me to say you know I, I have you know personally been born on a land and lived on a land that's very steeped in folklore and history so my connection is very much to the landscape and to that folklore and history whereas I no, that's not the same for people that live outside of where their grandparents or their parents have come from. So it's a little bit different. Yeah, I think there's, I, and everybody's different. I mean, I would argue that like my father didn't care about anything to do with his previous, you know, his, his ancestry's background. So it's not like it's, it's a common thing. But I think there is, to some extent, a strong sort of sense of understanding where you've come from that comes out of, especially I think if you've come from somewhere else and at some point in your history, be it, you know, your grandparents or great grandparents or whatever, uh, you do have sort of an interest in knowing kind of where that's come from. Um, and I think that does lead into it. I think for me, uh, the biggest thing I've noticed is that the, there's a there's a false narrative, which I, I kind of fight against a bit with the podcast, which is that there was this national understanding of what a Welshman was or what a Briton was going back into the earliest points when the the various kingdoms took off at the end of the Roman period. And you have to kind of convince people that it it's the perception at that point was not, hey, we're one nation. It was more, we're a bunch of individual kingdoms, and we don't necessarily look at the other kingdoms as being the same or necessarily are equal or even brother or sister or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, so the, there's not the sense of nationalism the way we think of it. And that's one of the things I think people misunderstand is that you know if you came from Gwyneth you didn't necessarily think of yourself as Welsh you thought of yourself as a uh, if you thought of yourself of anything you know you're a subject of the king of Gwyneth and that was about it <laughs> so I, I yeah. think the, the language commonalities are one thing but I think when we when we think that there was more to it I don't think that comes until after the conquest no, I certainly agree um, with you to a large extent, really. It's it's kind of ludicrous to kind of have this idea of, oh, yes, you know, there was always, I'm English, I'm Welsh. And when the Kingdom of Wales was divided up into various lands and kingdoms, you know, the Kingdom of England wasn't England. It was all these other parcels of land with various names, you know. And as I was saying um, 
earlier bards were connected to various lords so they would tell the history and genealogy of that lord and then that lord's kingdoms and petty kingdoms and things like that so your loyalty was really to the piece of land that you were from which lord looked after your land it wasn't stretching back you know far to the romans and saying oh yes we welsh we've always been you know um stepped on <laughs> there wasn't yeah. that there wasn't that nationalistic idea of it because there wasn't one nation to be nationalistic no. of yeah yeah and i think that's that's where we struggle because we have very strong nation states that have very formulated ideas about what that is i think we get I think it's easy to get confused just because of the, the, the language commonality, as you said, because, you know, you have the Welsh language. There was a, a Welsh identity, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't how we imagine it to be or how it is today. You know, it was just that there was a common language read and spoken. Yeah. And especially in the medieval period where you have allegiances to lords and to local local nobility, you you may not even consider the king as being a ruler that you have to deal with other than in sort of a nebulous fashion. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast. We'll be back with uh, more from Sean in the next episode. Until then, everyone, take care. If you want to contact me, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Any questions, comments, or concerns, be sure to reach out to me. And until next time, everyone, take care. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.